With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and Logic. Love and Logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With Love and Logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and Logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give Love and Logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and Logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com. Hi, everyone. I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. If you're a woman of a certain age, or if you even know a woman of a certain age, I think this episode of Next Question is for you. Because when it comes to menopause, which, according to Webster's Dictionary, is, quote, the natural cessation of menstruation that usually occurs between the ages of 45 and 55, people have a lot of questions. I got terrible hot flashes. And I I'm have experienced on. joint pain. It's definitely moodiness. It's crankiness. It's stress. Sleep deprivation, brain fog, irritability. But because of where I am with husband and kids, it's hard to tell like how much of that is my body and hormones versus just normal life. Susan Dominus wrote a groundbreaking and really long overdue cover story for the New York Times magazine called Women Have Been Misled About Menopause. So we invited her, along with Dr. Rebecca Brightman, a New York City gynecologist who specializes in menopausal medicine, to get real about what to expect when you're no longer expecting. By the way, if you want to get smarter every morning with a breakdown of the news and fascinating takes on health and wellness and pop culture, Sign up for our daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, by going to katiecurric.com. So, Dr. B, you're going to be here. Have you been on the show before, on the podcast? I have not done her podcast. We've done like... We are really going to be getting down and dirty here today, ladies. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds good. Uh, We're going to really be talking about menopause. And I'm so excited that we're doing this. And I know, Dr. Brightman, you're pretty jazzed as well. Very excited. It's a big deal. It's great to see you. And Susan, I am so excited to see you (laughs) again and to discuss this because you have really hit it out of the park. She blew the lid off of menopause, didn't she? Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And it's really, it affirms what I've been discussing with my patients for decades And it's really helped women understand that they are not alone. We're going to be talking about menopause, perimenopause. We're going to be talking about vaginal dryness. We're going to be talking about hot flashes. We're going to be talking about night sweats. We're going to be talking about all sorts of fun things. Are you two pretty jazzed? Absolutely. Yep. It's pretty much all I do lately. Anyway. Ditto, ditto, ditto. It's been my career. (laughs) Okay, perfect. Susan, let's start with you because I feel like you are a hero to so many women (laughs) out there who read your cover story in the New York Times magazine. What was your reaction to the reaction? I have to say I was stunned. I mean, of course, the reason we did the article was to address this gap that seemed so apparent just based on the conversations I was having with a fairly wide circle of friends. I mean, most of my women friends now are in their early 50s. And, you know, I'm kind of a 
I'm not a shy person. I ask a lot of questions of my friends. And You're a reporter. I'm a reporter. <laughs> and it was amazing to me the range of confusion and how common it was. So we knew that there was a total need for the, some kind of information. And at the same time, I would say within an hour of it going up, I had one friend text me and said that she had already had the article texted to her on four different girlfriend group threads that she was on. And it had just gone up. And that was what we started hearing over and over and over again, that every woman who was in some big group text thread, I clearly am not in enough of those, but um, they were getting them from all sides and it was just circulating and the comments started pouring in. And on the one hand, as I said, it seemed sort of like, yes, of course, that people would be um, relieved and surprised to see all this information in one place in The New York Times because there had been such a hunger and confusion about it. On the other hand, you never expect that kind of reaction. You just can't. Dr. Brightman, who, full disclosure, is my doctor, who has said I could call her Becky during this podcast. You were doing backflips when you read this article. I think you and I talked about it. You were talking about it with your fellow OBGYNs. What was your reaction? I was so excited. I know I met Susan at last um, fall's NAMS meeting. Well, uh, explain what NAMS is. North American Menopause Society meeting in Atlanta. I knew she was working on the article. And the morning, I think it came out initially um, online, and then it subsequently was in print a couple days later. It is the greatest article. It is so <laughs> affirming to what I do. I feel it is such an uphill battle trying to discuss some of the things we're going to talk about now and to explain to people and reassure them that what their experience is normal, but it's part of the menopause transition and women need to be heard. And I think it was the most validating article. And it also really went to discussion of the statistics and why menopause hasn't received enough attention and why hormones have received such a bad rap. We're going to talk about the bigger picture about women's health in general in a little while. But first, I want to really do a deep dive into the article, Susan. How did this piece heard around the world come about? Was it because you were going through this, your friends were going through it, and you all were confused? I actually really am glad you asked that because um, the reason this article came into being is really due to the vision of my male editor-in-chief, Jake Silverstein. Wow. That's amazing. I'm impressed. Stop the presses. (laughs) I know. He came to me and said, I think we should, and my wonderful editor, Alina Silverman, as well, said, I think we should do an article about menopause, but it was a very big, baggy topic. I didn't know where to begin. And your writing is pretty vivid, Susan. I wondered if I could just quickly read this paragraph. For the past two or three years, many of my friends, women mostly in their early 50s, have found themselves in an unexpected state of suffering. The symptoms they've experienced were varied and intrusive. Some lost hours of sleep every night, disruptions that chipped away at their mood, their energy, the vast resources of goodwill that it takes to parent and to partner. One friend endured week-long stretches of menstrual bleeding so heavy that she had to miss work. Another friend was plagued by as many as 10 hot flashes a day. A third was so troubled by her flights of anger, their intensity new to her, that she sat her 12-year-old son down to explain that she was not feeling right, that there was this thing called menopause, and that she was going through it. Another felt a pervasive dryness in her skin, her nails, her throat, even her eyes, as if she were slowly calcifying. By the way, you're a really great writer, Susan. <laughs> I just want to say that. It's, it's so <laughs> evocative. Um, Susan, the more you looked into this, were you surprised at how significantly menopause was affecting women in their daily lives? Well, you know, you you start to hear about it first from your older friends. So I was already thinking about it a little bit. But um, when I got together with my college friends, that was when I really started hearing about how drastic it had been. And, and, you know, it was interesting is also the range of reactions that my women friends had. I would say that some of my friends were looking for answers and somehow could not find them or did not know what information to trust. And then there was a whole other cohort of friends who I think just thought, This is just my lot in life, you know, to suffer. Like, this is what happens when you get older. And I think they thought, well, if there was something that could be done, surely somebody would have said something about it. And Dr. Brightman, Becky, you see patients all the time. Do these symptoms sound about right to you? Absolutely. And and it's interesting. When I practiced obstetrics, I used to say, well, hormones of pregnancy, which are the hormones that change during menopause, affect every organ system in the body. And the same is true with menopause. So it's not just night sweats and hot flashes. And honestly, it is really the disrupted sleep 
and the night sweats initially in one's 40s that sort of, you know, precipitate mood changes and difficulty focusing and, you know, cognitive changes and all the things women talk about. I'm glad you mentioned cognitive changes, Susan. Tell us about that conversation you had, which you include in your piece. When you're at a cocktail party and you see an older writer, this actually broke my heart, honestly. There was a writer whose work I had always admired, and um, she had precipitously retired. And I'd always wondered what happened, and I saw her at a party, and I just said, you know, I just loved your writing so much. I always wondered, why did you stop? And without even hesitating, she just said, menopause. Uh, I couldn't find the words. And she is sure that that was the cause. It wasn't, you know, as if she was on the path of dementia. It was just completely timed to this phase in her life. And it was, you know, really agony for her, I think. And I think that always stuck in my mind as well. As a writer, it sent a chill down my spine at the time, I remember. First, I just want to ask you about brain fog, Becky. I mean, do doctors know what causes this and how it's associated with menopause? So as hormone levels start to fluctuate, they're super high at levels of estrogen and super low levels, and it's the highs, it's the lows, it's really the disruptive sleep. And the fact that women can't focus and feel foggy, they're looking for words. And for many women, and there's there have been studies that show that many women will return to baseline with respect to word finding and cognitive function. For some women, there will be some age-related decline, but it's very, very scary when it happens to you. And I think that you know, Susan's article is so eye-opening for women because as doctors, those of us who practice menopausal medicine, we know this, but for many women, it'll be eye-opening because it can be one of the earlier signs. Someone can be having regular menstrual periods, but start to notice, gosh, they're not sleeping. They're they're drenched at night. You know, they're exhausted during the day. They can't make it through work. And I think now that we have so many women in the workforce, so many women, we have very, you know, set the bar for ourselves. It's very high bar, and we want to keep achieving and one wants to be their best self. And it's very hard when you've been so impacted by the you know, inability to sleep, brain fog. And people say, well, it's not me. It's not me. I've never been like this before. Why? Parenthetically, I started doing the patch, uh, a hormone patch, when I think I went through menopause at around 54 because I was anchoring the CBS Evening News and I didn't want to have like a brain fart in the middle of the absolutely, Evening News or absolutely. forget the question I was supposed to be asking a correspondent. We're going to get into the Women's Health Initiative and and, and the hormone study in a moment, but I think you raised this, Susan, in your piece, and you do wonder if men were going through this experience if we wouldn't have a lot more solutions. In fact, you write, imagine that some significant portion of the male population started regularly waking in the middle of the night drenched in sweat, a problem that endured for several years. Imagine that those men stumbled to work exhausted, the morale low, frequently tearing off their jackets or hoodies during meetings and excusing themselves to gulp for air by a window. Imagine that many of them suddenly found sex to be painful, that they were newly prone to urinary tract infections, with their penises becoming dry and irritable, (laughs) even showing signs of what their doctors call atrophy. I've said lately when I've been talking about women's health issues, if we had focused as much attention on these issues as we had on the development of Viagra. Mm-hmm. Imagine where we'd be. You have to think. And it, it does have to, you, you can't help but think that it is about a discomfort with not just female sexuality, but aging women's sexuality. It's just not seen as a priority. I can say from personal experience that Becky Brightman is an excellent doctor who talks to her patients about pretty much everything, including menopause and a whole host of issues. We don't have to get into detail here. (laughs) But Susan, you found in your reporting this just isn't the case. I think it is pretty unusual. You know, and you can talk about the different kinds of doctors who see women. You know, some women stop seeing gynecologists and they only go to family medicine or internists. And those doctors obviously, um, you know, need to be well-versed in so many topics, but they really are underinformed, I do believe, about menopausal symptoms and about hormone therapy in particular. I, I do think that many OBGYNs, you know, if a woman comes in and she is absolutely gutted by symptoms and is, you know, it's completely disrupting her life— 
I, I think increasingly there, you know, that people are um, moving away from the older fears, and they do recommend menopausal hormone therapy. But if if it's not that extreme, I think it's easier just to move on because it is a kind of complicated conversation. People do want to understand what the risks are. They are kind of individualized. It's hard to explain the history. It's hard to overcome people's hurdles. It's just time-consuming. And, you know, in the defense of many OBGYNs now, they have 15 minutes. They have other things they have to get through. And unless the person is completely wiped out and, and useless and, you know, in a state of extreme suffering, it might just be easier to move on. I mean, that's sort of the impression I get. It's a very long discussion, and it's not a one-size-fits-all when it comes to deciding whether or not menopausal hormone therapy is for you. There are many different types of menopausal hormone therapy, and there's certain tests that I need to make sure someone's had. We have to go through family history. You can't do that in 15 minutes. So it's tough, and I also think doctors don't necessarily, you know, A, want to take the time. They don't find it really interesting. And again, it's opening up a can of worms. When one of your friends, Susan, expressed concerns about a lower libido and vaginal dryness, she could tell her doctor was uncomfortable talking about both. You write about this. And you quote her as saying, I thought, hey, aren't you a vagina doctor? I use that thing for sex. Yes, but I think sex also is a complicated subject. It has to do with like emotional relationships and is anybody on an antidepressant and you know is how's your marriage? I mean, I think people feel doctors must feel it opens up a huge can of worms that like you know if you open it it'll just it'll never stop. So I think that it's not something that in general gynecologists are excited that, to talk about. That quote made me laugh that out was loud. A great, it was a great quote. When we come back, we're going to talk about the Women's Health Initiative, which really screwed things up for everyone. We'll do that right after this. Story, but there's this, I have this distinct memory of being pregnant at my first baby shower and all the young gals are up front and they're giving you like fun gifts and things and they're so cute and everything's awesome, but there's this ring of gray-haired ladies in the back and they're not really saying anything um, other than we're so happy for you, but there's like this black box that happens of like, okay, you're going to have to figure this out for yourself. It, it kind of feels like that. It feels like a frontier. We'll be right back. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. My friends, my loving friends, I have shared, they have shared, but what a wonderful support system I have in that area. Everything is discussed, sleep deprivation to depression to vaginal dryness, and with being so transparent, you just don't feel alone in all of this. You know, you're not the only one going through this, to say the very least. We're back with Dr. Becky Brightman and also Susan Dominus of the New York Times talking about menopause and all sorts of fun things like vaginal dryness. How often can I say vaginal dryness in one podcast? Not often enough, apparently. Let's talk now about the Women's Health Initiative. So, Susan, there was a 1991 National Institutes of Health Hormone Trial. It was the first clinical trial involving all women, thanks to Bernadine Healy, 
May she rest in peace. I always feel like she doesn't get enough credit. The NIH director who started the WHI. So let's start by talking about what that trial was designed to do. So it was the largest um, all-women trial, as you say, and it was trying to answer a couple of different questions. But I would say the question that drove its initiation in the first place was, are hormones, in fact, good for women's health, specifically cardiovascular health? And there was a concern that there might be some elevated risk of breast cancer, but there had been a lot of observational studies that suggested that um, when women went on hormones, they saw lower rates of cardiovascular because disease. Because we should mention they do have lower rates until they go through menopause, and then their rate of cardiovascular disease equals men, correct? So exactly. they were thinking estrogen had some kind of protective quality for the heart. That's exactly right. And in fact, one of my favorite quotes in the piece came from a doctor, Hadeen Joffrey, who said, you don't understand, I had a slide that said we should have estrogen in the water. It should be like fluoride. That's how good for women people thought that estrogen was. But there was some concerns about estrogen, I guess, Dr. Brightman, where maybe this breast cancer question was kind of looming large. Right. So the WHI was designed as a prevention trial to see whether or not hormones actually prevented disease. What happened with breast cancer? Did it prevent coronary artery disease, cardiovascular disease? Did it help bones? And then it was abruptly halted, as we know, because there was a signal that perhaps it did increase the risk of breast cancer. And that really has to be teased apart. Before we talk about it getting halted, I read that, I think in your article, Susan, (laughs) that estrogen had been around for decades, right? And women were getting a lot of positive results from it, Becky? So what happened is it was finally realized that, you know, women were using just estrogen alone. And then it became apparent, I think, in the 70s that women really, that estrogen would stimulate the lining of the uterus. And when you have too much stimulation of the uterine lining, women are at increased risk of getting uh, endometrial cancer, cancer of the uterine lining. So by the addition of progestogen, progesterone being one of them, you can... Mitigate regulate that. and you can mitigate the increased risk. So in women with the uterus who were going to use menopausal hormone therapy, they needed, if they were taking estrogen, they had to use some sort of progestin. For women without a uterus, they could just be on estrogen alone. So this was the first big study to determine, like, scientifically, what are the pros and cons of hormone replacement therapy? Exactly. All right. So suddenly, as Becky intimated, The trial was stopped. Why? It was stopped after five years because they found in the group that was taking uh, both estrogen and progestin, which is to say women who have uteruses, that they were seeing an increased risk of breast cancer. In that group, there was an uptick in breast cancer. But they continued it, the study, and they did not see it in the group of women using estrogen alone. And it's so interesting because estrogen is what gets the bad rap. But in the group that, again, estrogen alone, no increased risk. So it got changed midstream. It was supposed to last for eight and a half years. And the idea that they halted it unexpectedly after five years was very big news. They also held a very big press conference. And, you know, when people understand that a study has been stopped unexpectedly, I think they think that translates into, and therefore you too must stop using this medication. I remember covering this back in the day, by the way. And you write, What happened next was an exercise in poor communication that would have profound repercussions for decades to come. What did happen? Basically, representatives of the WHI, very well-intended, but not particularly media-trained, went on television shows and started, you know, engaging in conversations in which a lot of statistics were rattled off. And some of those statistics sounded very, very scary. Right. In fact, the coverage was pretty breathless. And I would say, in retrospect— unintentionally alarmist. You talk about an interview that Ann Curry did on the Today Show. An important medical story making news this morning. The government has abruptly ended the country's largest study of a type of hormone replacement therapy that found long-term use of estrogen and progestin can increase a woman's risk of breast cancer, strokes, and heart attacks. Sylvia Smoller is a principal investigator in this study. Sylvia, good morning. I was working on the Today Show back then, and I remember all of this pretty well. And it was with one of the chief investigators with the Women's Health Initiative. What the effects were. What made it ethically impossible to continue the study? Well, in the interest of safety, we found that there was an excess risk of breast cancer, which had passed the 
uh, pre-specified monitoring boundary lines, and there was also no benefit for heart disease, and in fact, some excess risk for heart disease. And to be very specific here, you actually found heart disease, the risk increased by 29%, the risk of strokes increased by 41%, it doubled the risk of blood clots, invasive breast cancer risk increased by 26%, and cardiovascular disease increased by 22%. So what are we telling women, the 6 million women in America today, who are taking HRT? So how did these numbers get so misunderstood or misreported? Well, they were definitely not misreported. They were accurate. Those numbers were accurate per the WHI. I just think, again, it takes a little bit more time to say, okay, so what does that actually translate into for the average woman? And what did it translate into? Well, the the math that we did was that if a woman's risk of having breast cancer between the ages of 50 and 60 is around 2.33%, let's say if you increase that risk by 26%, that means now you've elevated it to a 2.94%. So, you know, that in the grand scheme of things, everybody can have their own comfort level with a 2.94% risk and how much you've increased it. But that's not, I don't think, how women heard it at the time. And in fact, you say smoking, by contrast, increases cancer risk by 2,600%. That's, that's, no, that's a risk. So we're talking <laughs> yeah. about a very, very small uptick if you're on HRT. What was the impact of all that coverage Becky, you've been living it for the last 30 years. Living it and continue to live it. It was unbelievable. From the second I walked into the office, the phones were ringing like crazy. I heard of stories where women were sent letters by their gynecologists at the time being told to stop hormones. I will tell you that my patients who, if I ever mentioned it, they were symptomatic. They were like, absolutely no. Don't I know that they could get cancer? It's amazing. And I still get to face women who say this to me all the time. But it was quite remarkable. It really was something else. There have been other long-term ramifications. Medical students who graduated around this time, and you point this out as well, Susan, were thinking HRT bad. And that carried on throughout the decades they've been practicing medicine, right? That is exactly right. I mean, I think the statistic we quote in there is that something like half of practicing OBGYNs graduated from medical school or finished their residencies after the WHI. So that's a huge percent of the population who basically never really learned about hormone therapy in medical school. And also, I gather in clinics, it doesn't come up very often, in part because of the population that's being treated. So there's not a lot of opportunity to learn it on the ground either. The study was flawed in a whole host of ways, it seems. Can you all talk about why this study really wasn't accurate? The most important thing is for women to realize that You know, I think women take this information. They say, how does it affect me? Well, the truth of the matter is the average age of the women in the study was between 62 and 63. You know, many of these women did have some comorbidities. Many of them, on average, were 12 years beyond their final period. And the majority of these women didn't even have menopausal symptoms. So it was a lousy population to study. You know, what we really needed to go back and do is look at the 50 to 60-year-olds. How did they do? And you know what? They did pretty well. Um, And then once things are teased apart and we look at it decade by decade, it's very, very different. But essentially, one just extrapolated all the findings to themselves and thought, oh, no, I'm going to get breast cancer. I'm going to get heart disease. And my bones may be good, but that's about it. There were other flaws, though, too. The the formulations of the hormones well, the, were kind of off. Now we have better hormones that more mimic a woman's natural biology. So it's not as though the hormones were flawed. And those poor hormones, <laughs> conjugated estrogen and medroxyprogesterone acetate, which was a progesterone, um, received such a bad rap, a really, really bad rap. And we still use them. Um, However, there was a really, you know, the number of prescriptions that were being written for the combination dropped dramatically. And unfortunately, it gave rise to some very unsafe options, but it opened up the world of what we call bioidenticals, many of which are great because there are several FDA-approved wonderful bioidentical options. You can get them through any commercial pharmacy. But I think people were so worried about safety that they started going to physicians who would prescribe 
lotions and potions, as I say, compounded forms of hormones that made people believe, women believe that these were safer options, yet they weren't studied. Mm -hmm. So essentially, they were trading something that they thought was horrible for them because of what, you know, they looked at the data, they looked at the WHI results, going to what was what they perceived to be safer options. And there were safer bioidentical options, but you needed to discuss it with your physician. Right. But also, what about synthetic hormones? Haven't they been vastly improved since this study? Yes. And one has to realize all hormones are synthesized. You know, many of them are derived from plant products, but they are all synthesized. They are made in a lab. We don't pick them from a tree. Interesting. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're going to answer some listeners' questions because we got the doctor here. We've got the <laughs> expert there. Let's take advantage of you. We'll be right back. My mom was pretty modest and old-fashioned, and I feel like that really has changed the way I parent my kids, all of them, boys and girls. I feel like they need more bracing truth about, like, this is what goes on. And it's not something to be scared of. It's something to respect. But I feel like the way I was raised, it, was, it just wasn't talked about. And it's sort of met with a shrug, definitely. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant. Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. With AT&T in-car Wi-Fi, stay connected wherever you go and transform your vehicle into a dependable Wi-Fi hotspot. Powering applications like real-time GPS and voice assistant, navigation becomes a breeze. Even on the practice field, AT&T in-car Wi-Fi keeps you connected while in proximity of your vehicle. Work, stream shows, or finish homework without missing a beat. See if you're eligible for a free trial at att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi. Don't let connectivity be a roadblock in your journey. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Society could certainly be more tolerant, more mindful of all of the issues that women have to face from the very beginning of our lives to the very end. Of course, society could be a heck of a lot more empathetic and supportive. And hopefully we'll see that at some point. Hopefully. We're back with Dr. Becky Brightman and Susan Dominus talking about menopause and really perimenopause and maybe a little postmenopause, which I am officially in, ladies and gentlemen. I think one of the bottom lines here is that HRT has small risks, but a big reward. Is that a safe thing for me to say? I feel so. I've always felt this way. And what's really interesting, and the United States Preventive Service Task Force would say, no, 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 we are not supposed to talk about hormones and the benefits they may have in terms of disease reduction and everything else. But I think we've come a long way. You know, it used to be hormones were strictly for night sweats and hot flashes, and they had to be really, really, really bad. But we know that they improve the quality of one's life greatly, if in need, and they also may serve a role with disease prevention. All right. Well, we got a lot of questions about HRT, hormone replacement therapy. One question asks, can HRT be used if you have a family history of ovarian cancer? So that's a great question. There is a tiny bit of data that there may be a minuscule increase in ovarian cancer in women who use menopausal hormone therapy, MHT, or hormone replacement therapy. Again, it really needs to be individualized. I think much more goes into counseling a woman with a family history of ovarian cancer, and there's certain things one can do to reduce risks and certain genetic testings that can be offered, but it would not mean that someone with that family history can't be on hormones. But they would need to discuss it thoroughly to discuss with their it, doctor. To discuss it, but the, if there were an increase, it would be minuscule. 
What if you're at a high risk for breast cancer is another question. Is HRT absolutely out of the question? No, no. And it depends, again, on family history, again, on genetic predispositions. One has to, again, look at the symptoms. And with appropriate counseling, it's a very individualized, personalized decision. Should women take hormones if they're only experiencing slight symptoms? Yes, I think so. They should be offered hormones, and it should be part of the discussion. And I find I'm backpedaling with my patients, like those who have said years ago, my my symptoms aren't terrible. I'm cruising through this. I'm now revisiting it because many of their eyes have been opened by Susan's wonderful article. (laughs) So I feel that if I don't discuss it with them— I need to discuss it again. So, again, it depends on the woman. And even if I have somebody with mild symptoms, of course I talk about it because I don't want them to leave my office and think, huh, she didn't talk to me about this. And also in your article, Susan, you talk about, like, what is significant. Exactly. Like, how do you measure if something is bothersome or not, right? Especially um, one of the doctors I interviewed, Nanette Santoro, who was pointing out to me that when her patients say to her, I don't know, I feel I'm not sleeping well and I'm really moody and I'm getting these incredible migraines. I don't know, is it menopause or just stress? You know, she would say to them, well, you could try hormones. You don't have to marry them. You can date them. And if you don't see an improvement in your symptoms in three months, we'll take you off. If you do see an improvement, I think we can bet that it was estrogen deprivation and you may choose to stay on them. So she was sort of saying, you know, every patient is going to weigh their own personal tolerance for risk with the benefits to their lifestyle of going on the the hormones, but you don't actually know the benefits necessarily until you've tried them. So for, you know, look, if you're sailing through and you're completely symptom-free, then maybe it's not something even to think about. But if you're wondering about it, there's very little harm in trying. And speaking of that, I I had to ask a personal question because I was diagnosed with breast cancer, as Dr. Brightman knows, in June. And I have been on HRT, the patch, probably, gosh, 10 or 11 years maybe now. And I loved it. Didn't look great with bikinis, but that's okay. (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't wear bikinis anymore. But, um, you know, I couldn't help but wonder, as Carrie Bradshaw would say, did the patch result in my breast cancer? I would say no, it didn't. And as one of my friends was told by her breast surgeon when my friend asked, why did I get breast cancer? She got breast cancer because she's a woman. And if we think about it, one in eight women will get breast cancer during the course of their lifetime. And this, you know, we're not talking about one in eight women in their 30s, 40s, or 50s. But by the time we live our lives, life expectancy for women now is about 81. One in eight women will get breast cancer. And I, my feeling is that is why. And I think for many women, if appropriately counseled, the benefits outweigh any potential risk. But now that I have gotten breast cancer, I can't go back on the patch, can I? Not really, no. There are certain situations with appropriate counseling where women have resumed hormones, but they are few and far between. And I venture to say the majority of physicians would say it's a hard no. Let's move on to some other questions we got from our daily newsletter, Wake Up Call, shameless plug, sign up at katiecorrect.com, and social media. We got a lot of questions, Susan, about hot flashes. And I thought we would just take a moment because I thought it was fascinating. You talked about this internal regulator we all have that causes hot flashes. Can you explain, doctor, even though you're not a doctor? <laughs> I can explain what doctors explained to me, which is that the hypothalamus regulates body temperature and is very rich in estrogen. I'm not getting a hot flash. I'm taking my sweater off. It just happens to be hot in here. Appropriately enough. Um, it's very sense. So the hypothalamus is rich in estrogen receptors. It's also somehow connected to the reproductive system. So if it regulates body temperature and suddenly it's not getting the estrogen that it used to, it starts to get a little bit wonky. And it over-interprets little cues internally about rises in core body temperature, really infinitesimal rises, and body responds as if there was some kind of catastrophic oven, you know, from within, and it dilates all the blood vessels, and it sends sweat rushing to the surface of the skin, and 
um, the the surface of the skin, actually, the temperature there really does rise. But what's so interesting to me about hot flashes is that women feel as if they do have an oven within, but it's kind of almost like a phantom limb sensation. Like, obviously, your inner core is not suddenly steaming, you know? It's, there's very little change there. But that's where women really do experience that heat. So it's a purely cognitive kind a of— A brain ex- chemistry it's a thing. Brain, it's a brain phenomenon. It's a and neural phenomenon. Is yeah. it the same with night sweats? I got— I mean, people are like, we really don't care what you had, Katie, but I relate (laughs) a lot to this conversation. I don't think I had hot flashes, but I did have night sweats where I'd wake up, not bad, but, you know, my pajamas would be kind of soaked. It's the same mechanism of action, the lack of estrogen and the firing away of neurons in the the hypothalamus. That's why it's so important to be able to talk to your doctor and to really be able to share your individual symptoms. Um, the other thing is estrogen has anti-inflammatory properties, and we really see an uptick in rheumatologic diseases, um, arthritis, and all sorts of skin-related phenomenon after menopause. And I don't think anyone ever thought about estrogen having an anti-inflammatory relationship. Estrogen changes everything. It can change the bacteria that's in our gut. There's some thought that that gut bacteria plays a role with inflammation also. It's also all interrelated. I mean, it's a super hormone. Estrogen is also like a natural antidepressant. And we haven't talked about this, but a lot of women who go through menopause become depressed because of the decrease in estrogen, right? Yes, absolutely. They do. They do. And they don't realize it. They don't realize it. Their doctors don't realize it. It's one of the most upsetting things to me. Uh, nuance and anxiety, nuance and palpitations. Women will go to their physicians and talk about it. And no, people do not draw a correlation between those symptoms and menopause. And I'm not saying that hormones are first line for treating anxiety and depression, but if it's part of the whole picture, absolutely it's worth a try. I wanted to bring up something that's so important is that these symptoms are often worse in women of color. Why do these symptoms sometimes affect women of color even more severely? So we really actually don't know, but there really seem to be some racial disparities amongst, you know, who tends to have uh, more what we call vasomotor symptoms or VMS, night sweats, hot flashes. Women who are black definitely have been noted to have worse symptoms. Women who are Asian, you know, fewer symptoms. And what's very concerning is we want to make sure people are getting the appropriate care because now it seems like the worse the vasomotor symptoms, the greater the risk of cardiovascular disease. So women need to be offered some education about it, information, and the option to treat their symptoms, particularly because they may be at risk of what lies down the road. We want to get in a couple more questions from women who wrote in who are dry as the Sahara, let's just say. (laughs) What you were talking about calcifying, this is pretty much happening to a lot of women. One says, I've experienced extreme dryness and have had to take a three-year break from sex. What can I do now? That's so upsetting. That's so upsetting. Like, I, I, I have to tell you, I really try to be proactive with my patients. And once they stop menstruating, talk about, are you having this symptom, that symptom? And they're like, no, no, no. I said, just be aware. Now, with menopause, there can be an increase of vaginal dryness, itching, burning, painful sex. You know, mostly it's reversible. I think that the the nice thing is we have many options and different ways in which we can treat our patients. So, you know, whoever feels dry as a Sahara, we can make that better. That's the good news. I don't want to give short shrift to perimenopause because we Mm. really haven't mentioned that at all. Becky, is there something that you can talk about when it comes to perimenopause that will help women who may be in that phase of life. When we talk about menopausal symptoms, these are largely the symptoms women start experiencing during perimenopause. Menopause is a transition, and there are different stages of going through this transition. But what we describe as perimenopause can last, it can last like up to seven years, and many women can have regular menstrual periods. But the first thing they may notice might be getting warm at night. Then they may notice that they're, you know, just not sleeping well. And, you know, these symptoms can then snowball into heavier periods, irregular periods, moodiness, 
um, just a whole constellation of symptoms, palpitations, which we haven't talked about. Many women are seeking out, you know, cardiologists. They need to be evaluated for palpitations, but that, that's also a symptom. So they're frequently symptomatic of other things that are frequently brushed off. Some women during perimenopause have vaginal dryness. So again, it's very varied. People's experiences are very varied at the time. When should women start talking to their doctors about this? I start now that I have a large menopause practice, I would say in, as women get into their 40s, I do, you know, early, early 40s, certainly mid 40s. And I think the hardest thing for my patients is when they're on the earlier side. No one wants to be the first one to go through it, whereas I have other patients who are 56. But, you know, for the 44-year-old, the 45-year-old, where things are starting to change, and for some women, they're younger, it's hard to discuss and acknowledge the fact that some of the things they are experiencing may be linked to the menopausal transition. I was just going to add that I think a lot of women are under the impression that you start menopausal hormone therapy when you are officially menopausal, which is to say a year after your last period, and they think that there's nothing they can do during perimenopause. Oh, I'm still getting my period, so I'm not going to get treated. But in fact, for women who are experiencing heavy bleeding or who are going through, you know, they, their periods are irregular, they know that they're in perimenopause, they're having brain fog, there are treatments that they can consider as well, which I will now defer to Dr. Brightman to discuss. So so it's interesting because we don't – we have many things we can do after menopause. And the issue is you can't necessarily put younger women on these, these therapies because they will probably menstruate around them and have all sorts of bleeding that then needs to be evaluated. But if one is a candidate for birth control pills, low-dose birth control pills are a beautiful thing. They can use them continuously without they even taking a break. They just kind of even out your estrogen? It, it, it creates hormonal neutrality for many women It just – helps them sleep. They just feel better. And it's a great way to transition them through menopause. And I'll keep them on, you know, depending on any underlying medical factors, I'll keep them on birth control pills until, you know, the early 50s or sometimes even mid-50s. It really depends. But many women who have a hormonal IUD, we can layer on a little estrogen through a patch, which is it works really, really nicely. The other thing is there are some non-hormonal options. Again, not everybody's a candidate for hormones and everyone can be on hormones. So, Unfortunately, we only have one FDA-approved option, paroxetine, in our in our country right now. Um, the FDA is on the brink of approving another medication called a fesalinitant. It also it targets the hypothalamic thermo, what we call the thermoregulatory center of the brain. So that offers tremendous promise. It's non-hormonal. It will be great for women who are not candidates for hormones or who choose not to go on hormones. The good news is there's several other medications we can use off-label, um, some antidepressants, anti-anxiety medications. There are non-hormonal nutritional supplements that many women opt to use, but the studies that are out there are very small. Many of them are self-funded by the companies that manufacture them. So if a woman is going to take a supplement, they should discuss it with their healthcare provider. Speaking of that, there is a whole new group of companies that are addressing these symptoms with creams and vibrators and lubricants and all kinds of things, which I think is a welcome addition to the marketplace. But I know, Becky, you're of the school of buyer beware. Buyer beware. And I think much the way it is for adolescent women, women should not get the wrong impression that they're being left out. Everyone's swinging from the chandeliers and, you know, the women are missing out and they need to buy these products. Just because somebody has come up with a concept for a product doesn't mean one needs necessarily to buy it. That's on one hand. But the other hand, it's really nice to be able to embrace the fact that, you know what, I'm a sexual being. I want to remain a sexual being. And there are products that are out there that are really geared towards me, you know, not towards a younger woman. So I, I actually think it's fantastic. But I know you're worried about all the stuff on social media, on TikTok, on Instagram with these companies kind of overstating what some of these things can do and taking advantage of women's suffering. Oh, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. We were, I have a group of um, friends, uh, fellow docs from North American Menopause Society, and they send around bad TikToks. There's misinformation out there. It's so upsetting. I think I could... I would love to dispel some of the myths. It would be a full-time job. So it breaks my heart because we don't have great access to healthcare providers who are well-versed in menopausal medicine. So women are turning to social media, and there's some great things on social media, but there's some things that are potentially very detrimental. I think some of the things I've learned in this conversation and through reading your 
great article, Susan, and through my conversations with Becky Brightman, is that a lot of doctors are not particularly knowledgeable about this. Uh, They don't have time or they're uncomfortable. This is something that has been kind of ignored by large swaths of the medical establishment, which makes me wonder, is this indicative of how women's health issues have been treated historically? Uh, Absolutely. You know, uh, in the past, for with respect to medicine, women were small men. Certainly when I was in medical school, no one differentiated cardiac disease in women as being any different than cardiac disease in men, and we've learned so much. But now, you know, the NIH has designated money that will go into researching women, women's health care. But this is all recent, and I think we do need more studies. And again, we have observational studies. There are certain things that I feel very comfortable doing for my patients, but there is so much, much more research that needs to be done. And education of physicians needs to be accelerated on a grand scale. What did you learn, Susan, about how did you feel about women's health and the attention paid to it after reporting out this article? You know, I, I think I would just quote Rebecca Thurston, who's um, a menopausal researcher out of the University of Pittsburgh, um, whom I interviewed for the piece. You know, she's thought about this for many more years than I have, and her basic conclusion about the lack of treatment um, for women suffering from menopausal symptoms all these years is just a reflection of what a high tolerance we have as a population for women suffering. And it was a really grim assessment, but it's very hard to argue with it. Well, hopefully things will change thanks to articles like yours and conversations like this. Dr. Becky Brightman and Susan Dominus. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you for having me on. It's been wonderful. Thanks for listening, everyone. If you have a question for me or want to share your thoughts about how you navigate this crazy world, reach out. You can leave a short message at 609-512-5505, or you can send me a DM on Instagram. I would love to hear from you. Next Question is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. Our supervising producer is Marcy Thompson. Our producers are Adriana Fazio and Catherine Law. Our audio engineer is Matt Russell, who also composed our theme music. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to the description in the podcast app or visit us at katiecouric.com. You can also find me on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Hey there, parents and teachers. Are you tired of feeling like every day is a battle of wills with your kids? Let me tell you about something that changed the game. Love and logic. Love and logic isn't just another parenting or teaching strategy. It's a mindset shift that empowers you to raise responsible, respectful kids while keeping your sanity intact. With love and logic, you'll learn practical techniques to set limits with empathy, give your kids the tools they need to make smart choices, and build relationships based on mutual respect and understanding. Love and logic stands behind their methods with a one-year money-back guarantee. Try it out risk-free. If it doesn't change your life, we'll buy it back. Plus, you can get 10% off with code IHEART10. So if you're ready to say goodbye to power struggles and hello to peaceful, loving relationships with your kids, it's time to give love and logic a try. Visit their website or call today. Your sanity will thank you. Love and logic, because parenting and teaching should be a joy, not a chore. Visit loveandlogic.com.